Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. About this time, every three years, this gospel reading and that epistle reading come around. And I have an existential crisis. These are difficult passages to preach. So here we go. All right. You can find our gospel passage on 800 and page 821, and I would invite you to turn there, either in your pew Bible, um, on your personal Bible, or dare I say personal device. If you got it, pull it out. You can look. We have such an interesting interaction with, uh, between our Lord and this Canaanite woman. And we're going to see that in the text, um, what Jesus is offering, though there, is, uh, there are many kind of boundaries that seem to be set between himself and her, what he's offering is an opportunity for her to grow in faith, something that she does. And then, of course, for our Lord to heal her. For this woman, as women are often portrayed in Holy Scripture, is one worthy of um, looking to. A woman of deep faith. So many women in Scripture of deep faith for us to turn to. Our Lord says as much about this woman. Verse 21, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. You see, Jesus had just left the area of Gennesaret, withdrawing now further north towards what is present-day Lebanon, which borders Israel to the south, present-day Israel to the south. If you remember our text from last Sunday, Jesus had just pulled up St. Peter from sinking, pulls him up, gets him in the boat. They cross the Sea of Galilee to Gennesaret. And then he faces, just before this text, some Pharisees and has an interaction with them about who are clean and who are unclean, kind of prepping the stage here for Jesus going into pagan territory, Gentile territory. And so he goes. But we're going to see, though, in this text, Jesus doesn't go to Tyre and Sidon to kind of announce some great mission to the Gentiles. He goes there, most commentators think, to rest a little bit with his disciples because he's just been performing miracles. Not only for the disciples, but he's, he's fed upwards of 5,000 people just recently. His name is out in the open and people are coming with him. So he goes north into pagan country to rest, it seems, for just a bit. It's here that he has this interaction with the Canaanite woman. Now, as I mentioned, this land is Gentile territory. It's the place of um, Elijah and the uh, the prophets of Baal. It's the place where we find um, King Ahab and that um, nasty queen Jezebel going against the prophets and God's people. This is where this scene takes place. This is where this Gentile woman will come to the Lord of the world, the Lord of the universe, and beg for mercy. 
and he will grant it to her. Now, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 20, Jesus makes a really interesting statement about Tyre and Sidon. Here's what he says, Matthew 11. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. We see that these two cities were not um, completely off of our Lord's radar. But he's going there to rest. But we're going to see that his mission was first to the people of God. But it would extend finally, of course, to all the world, to Gentiles. Um, Miss Betsy read it so well from our Isaiah passage. You see, in the beginning was the seed, even further back than Isaiah to Abraham, that God's mission on earth would begin with the Jewish people and would spread then to the Gentile nations. Salvation would be for all. Verse 22, and it says, Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. This woman from, this Canaanite woman, her heritage, her her family, her ancestors were those that were feuding and fighting against God's people. Her ancestors were the ones that were intermarrying with God's people and moving them into false worship. And here she is, a Canaanite woman representing the nations opposed to God in the world. And she comes to him, and she cries out. And we should see here in her crying out, there are a few things going on behind the scenes. Have mercy on me, Kyrie eleison, in Greek. We sing that quite often in our liturgy, Lord, have mercy. She screams this, yells it at our Lord, and she refers to him as Kyrios, this Gentile, would be kind of a Gentile notion of Jesus being the Lord. But then she goes even further, saying, O Lord, son of David, she, a Canaanite woman, identifies him as the Jewish Messiah, the son of David. And he lets our Lord know that her daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And can you imagine our Lord and his disciples, they're up in the territory north of Israel, north even of of the Galilee. They're there, and here comes a woman screaming at him, a Canaanite woman no less, asking for healing. He's been healing. He's trying to move away for a time as he's going to return back to the children of God, the Israelites, for his mission on earth. And here she is, a pagan, asking him for mercy. But then we have a sequence, three kind of things that happen between our Lord and this woman. And if we're honest, they make us a bit uncomfortable. They make us a bit uncomfortable. The first is verse 23. It says, But he did not answer her a word. He didn't answer her a word. Here's the first boundary set up by our Lord. He doesn't, he doesn't answer her. Matter of fact, he doesn't, he doesn't do anything. He just he keeps on, if he was walking, they were walking. He doesn't answer her. So this begs the question, does the Lord often use silence 
for his purposes. Silence to refine us. We as Anglicans can talk about monasticism. Sorry, there's a non sequitur there. We're getting somewhere. We can talk about monasticism as Anglicans. Now, we're not, we're not Roman or Eastern Orthodox. It doesn't have that type of influence in our theology, but we can talk about it. And we see it's in the monastic tradition that we, uh, that, that we are exposed to this notion that God in his silence can actually be doing something for us or giving us an opportunity for deeper faith and trust in him. <clears throat> if you're familiar with the rule of St. Benedict, he's got, he's got this kind of um, this guidebook for abbots, that is the head of monast- heads of monasteries for receiving new monks, new people. And you see, if you, if you knock on the door of a monastery, they don't just receive you in. They actually make you wait. They make you wait, and it's in the rule. Now, Brad, am I correct in them? They make you wait. They make you sit outside. Sometimes they won't come out to you. They'll make you sit, maybe for a day or two days or a week or several weeks until they can see and realize within you that God is working within you enough to bring you now in to this community. You see, they utilize silence as a way to teach, to instruct, to allow what God is doing in one's life to finally uh, come out, as we will see here with this Canaanite woman. You see that Jesus, too, had a right to be silent, silent with this woman. You know, this, um, it, it troubles our modern, um, our modern minds, I think, if it doesn't, um, that's a good thing, but sometimes it does, that he is silent in the midst of this. Shouldn't he answer her immediately? Shouldn't he heal the daughter immediately? But actually, God in his divine will and purposes has a right to be silent at times in our life and for us to respond as this blessed woman does here. Finally, on this notion of silence, St. Augustine writes, Christ showed himself indifferent to this woman not in order to refuse her mercy, but rather to inflame her desire for it. Let me say that again. St. Augustine wrote of this passage, Christ showed himself indifferent to her, not in order to refuse her his mercy, but rather to inflame her desire for it. Verse 5. And Jesus' disciples came, and they begged him, saying, Send her away. She's crying out after us. Over and over again, the disciples don't get it. They want her gone. She's, she's being annoying. She's persistent. And matter of fact, she's a Canaanite woman. Get her out of here. We need to move on with our mission. She's annoying us. We often jump too quickly to that next verse where Jesus sets another bit of a boundary between the woman and himself. But we shouldn't do it because Jesus doesn't actually send her away, does he? He doesn't send her away. Matter of fact, he suffers her. Verse 24, And Jesus answered to the woman, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I mean, when we read this, I think oftentimes we're like, oh, like, Lord, just heal her, please. You're, what, what do you mean that you're sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Like N.T. Wright's got a great comment on this section and this response by our Lord. He writes this, Though many Christians, alas, have tried to forget the specialness of Israel in the purposes of God, the New Testament writers never do. 
And Jesus himself certainly never implied anything differently. Wright goes on to say, what Jesus had come to do, as he says in Matthew 5, is not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Not to do away with the category of Israel, God's chosen people, but to fulfill the purpose for which this people existed in the first place. If God's new life was to come to the world, it would come through Israel. Jesus was on a mission. First, he says, to the people of Israel. And then we know, of course, beyond that, to the Gentiles at large. Verse 25. This doesn't suffice the woman. But she came and she knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. In the Greek, literally here, it's this this form of of, um, prostrated worship before him. That's, That's what she was doing. Crying out, Lord, help me. She would not be put out. Saying, in effect, Lord, even if it is your mission to go first to the children of God, the chosen people of Israel, please still help me. A persistent prayer of a woman of deep faith. Lord, help me. But then a third and final response of our Lord is given. He says, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Ooh, (laughs) tough. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, this is a spot in time where translations, I think, do fail us. The word that's used here for dogs, and there are a few in Greek... The word here that Matthew chooses to use is the diminutive form of dog, which means dogs that live in the house as a part of the family. Does that take away the sting that he's referring to her as not a child in the household of Israel, but as a dog? Well, no, it doesn't take away the sting of that. But this is not the term used for dogs out on the street scavenging around, but dogs that are within the house. We often hear this, I think, and and we think, well, no... Jesus' mission was to everybody, and that he should have been healing immediately, and and he shouldn't have, have said this and put up another boundary. But here's the thing. We're going to see that Jesus is allowing and teaching this woman even in this moment in time. And How do we know it? Well, I think we know it here with this next response that she gives. She agrees. Yes, Lord. Even the dogs, that is the household dogs, even they eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. You see, she understood what our Lord was saying. His mission was to the Jewish people, to the children of God, the children of the covenant first. But she, she and her Canaanite brothers and sisters and all the Gentiles of the world were not, however, stray dogs out in the street. They were in the household of God. And she says... If we're in here, if we're in this, we, even us, we get to eat the crumbs from the master's table. A posture of humility. No, I'm not a Jewish woman. I'm not a woman of the promise. But Lord, show mercy upon me. Show mercy upon me that I may even have a crumb from your table. A posture of humility that allows her to finally receive what Jesus will do, in fact, for her. That is the healing of her demoniac daughter. 
She wants just a crumb from the master's table. Our text closes with verse 28. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. See, beloved, there are a few takeaways I want us to have from this passage, a difficult passage, nonetheless. But I think a passage that that is able to teach us so much. Here's the first. The woman, this Canaanite woman, she exercised true humility in the face of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. True humility. I don't have a right to be healed. My, my, my daughter has no right necessarily to be healed by you. Our people were against your people. We're not children of the promise. But I believe. I believe and have mercy upon me kneeling in prostration before him, praying and begging him to have mercy. A humility, not clapping back. Well, shouldn't I be a child of God too? Why are you referring to me as as this house dog that's not, we should be a part of your mission too? What are you talking about, Messiah? Shouldn't you heal us all? No, no, no. She submits and says, in, in, in essence, your ways are higher than my ways, and you can heal should you wish. Here I am. Give me just a crumb from the table. The second. You see, beloved, God's sovereign mission in reality is above our ways, but when we cry out to him, he hears us, and even in his silence, he is teaching us and giving us opportunity for faithfulness. Even in his silence, he's giving us opportunity to show faithfulness, to deepen our faith by his grace. We read in Romans, in our passage, Romans 11, that we here, as Gentiles, we are wild olive shoots. You see, in the hierarchy of God's kingdom and of God's mission, we're not the tree trunk. We weren't the initial tree that was planted and raised up by God. No, we're olive shoots that have been grafted in by His grace and His mercy. And it's that mere fact that we should again move to humility before him and his promises. And finally, oftentimes in God's dealings with us, he will, as I said, give us opportunities to grow our faith, but this begs the question, and this is the ultimate question, I think, of our text this morning. Are we in communication with God himself in such a way that we, when we see an opportunity to be sanctified, to grow in faith, and to struggle before God and begging and pleading with Him to receive His goodness, are we in communication with Him enough that that is actually even possible? You see, in conclusion, the Syrophoenician woman, as Mark calls her, the Canaanite woman, as Matthew calls her, this Gentile woman could have finally just said, okay, I'm moving on. I'm moving on. Your mission seems to be to God's people, the Jews. I'm moving on. No. In persistence, in prayer, she stayed with our Lord. And at the end, he blessed and healed her daughter. Finally, beloved, let me say this. With this passage, 
think that we are instructed not to come to our Lord with arrogance or with pride, believing that He should grant to us things in our time and in the way that we would have them. But I think in patience and in faith, we're to cry out to God, even in the most difficult times of our life, saying, Lord, even in the, in the silence, even in, in, in your giving me things that aren't exactly lining up with my view of reality, we take them, we receive them, and we continue to give thanks to him. Because finally, beloved, and I believe this, and I think we have to believe this as Christians, that when we finally pass through death and enter into the new heavens and the new earth, God is going to give us a glimpse of it all. He's going to give us a glimpse of it all. In the silence, in his mission, in the reason that he went to Galilee at this point and to Nazareth at this point and to Tyre and Sidon at this point, all these decisions that Jesus made then in his earthly life and all the decisions God makes now in our lives make sense with his divine purposes. This final illustration comes from um, an older woman at the Baptist church that I was, was raised in for about 15 years. And she was a woman that, um, that sewed Afghans, these, these blankets, so to speak. If you've ever seen um, uh, Afghans, on one side there might be a beautiful picture, an image, like a tapestry that's gorgeous on one side. But when you turn it around, what do you see? You see thread that stretches in all sorts of directions. You see, when, when we look at that side, none of it makes sense. Lord, what is going on? Your, your mission first to, to the people of Israel, then to the Gentiles. You were silent to me for 10 years of my life. <laughs> this event happened. It, it almost destroyed me and my faith. What is going on in the end of all things? I promise if we persevere to the end, we're going to get a glimpse of that other side where we see that he was sewing together these things. And yes, even suffering for the good of us and for good of his kingdom. Oh, that you and me would have the persistent faith of this Canaanite woman who called Jesus not only Lord, but the son of David, the Messiah and the second person of the Trinity. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.